Hello, everybody, and welcome to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoot, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Today on Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, we're visiting with an economist. Our guest, Andy Schwartz, is a litigation economist with particular emphasis on antitrust, intellectual property, and securities. But why an economist on a sports show, you ask? Well, sports-wise, Andy has served as a consultant on legal cases such as White v. the NCAA, O'Bannon v. the NCAA, and one near and dear to my heart, the L.A. Raiders v. the NFL. Andy's also written extensively, eloquently, and I would add humorously, about the economic relationship of big-time sports and higher education. Andy has his MBA from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA and history degrees from Stanford and Johns Hopkins University. And one of the things we like is he's joining us from the Bay Area, and we found out just recently we lived in the same neighborhood uh, as he did while John coached for the Raiders. Welcome to Going Deep, Andy. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show, and I have to confess one thing, which is that since I met the two of you, uh, John in person and, and online, I can't get the Shoop Shoop song out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> you and every grocery store person that has ever checked me out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get that song sung to me a lot. So we're good with well, that. We're good with all right, that. Especially since there are two of you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, there are worse things that our name could bring up for people. Right. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Spaceballs, and with my last name being Schwartz, so yeah. <laughs> may, the Schwar- yes. may the Schwartz be with you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we thought of naming the show Shoop Shoop as well. So, <laughs> maybe. But uh, here, digging in now. Now your training is in history and in economics. How did sports become a focus of your work? So what I do. As a, as a professional, once I left grad school, is I work in the law as an economist working on antitrust cases. And a- accidentally, really, the, my very first day of work in 1997, I showed up and really didn't know what I was going to be doing. My advisor had basically helped me get a job, and he said, go work at my company. And I showed up, and I was like, they're going to pay me so great. <laughs> and first day, they handed me 10 depositions, which is basically legal transcripts from, from proceedings, and they said, read these. And it was 10 depositions taken of owners in the NFL for the case that is, you know, it's L.A. Raiders v. NFL. It was about the Raiders' argument that, that when they left L.A. in 95, that they had been forced out by the NFL. Hmm. And it turns out that my 
advisor in, in grad school who now at this company was the, the NFL's expert witness. He ended up being the expert witness in the Rams case that happened around the same time and the Raiders case. And so, like, on day one, thinking I was coming and, like, going to do calculus or something, I was reading Tom Benson's deposition and things like that. And um, that ended up being a pretty big case. It lasted long enough that the person who mentored me at the firm transitioned onto some other stuff, and I ended up running it by the time it got to trial. And um, this is where I sort of got the reputation of being uh, bad luck, because generally almost every case settles, but I get put on the ones that don't. And <laughs> since, since you know the late Al Davis, you know why that case didn't settle. He's Yeah, he don't when he settle. Think, when, he, when, when he thinks he's right, he's not going to... He ain't settling. Right. But that, um, four years of, of learning everything about the antitrust of sports leagues, meant that suddenly I had rocketed from knowing nothing about antitrust or anything to knowing a lot about this one specific niche and... A colleague came to me and said, I'm thinking about writing a paper about the NCAA and showing how the arguments that the NFL can make about why it needs to have rules controlling teams just don't apply to the NCAA. They might apply to the Big Ten. They might apply to the SEC as leagues, but they don't apply to the NCAA as sort of a a sanctioning body over those leagues and that especially in football where the NFL has, I'm sorry, the NCAA has no role really in scheduling, picking referees, doing anything right. in football with the exception of they, they sanction bowls. But that just means sort of vetting that the bowl is, is not like the you know, Budweiser Bowl or something that would be seen as being uh, disparaging to the sport. But other than that, they don't really have much of a role except that they also um, – Set the price that school, the maximum price that schools can pay to get their athletes, and so that paper was published in a in the American Bar Association's antitrust magazine. And at that point, I hadn't, I still don't have a ton of publications, but that was sort of like my first real scholarly publication. So it kind of set me off on a path. Mm-hmm. There isn't that much sports litigation, um, so most of what I do is about in the in the Ninth Circuit. We have lots of price fixing on pretty much every piece of your laptop that you have the battery, the memory, the screen. There has been not just allegations of price fixing, but, but proof of price fixing, and people have gone to jail for it. And that's what we do for the most part as we work on cases like that. But because I and also one of my partners have a real specialty in, in the sports antitrust, we end up with a decent chunk of those cases, especially sure. if involved college sports. That's really interesting. I mean, life works that way sometimes. We're in a certain place at a certain time, and we kind of find ourselves immersed in something and I wonder you know how does that sort of locate you in your guild and your colleagues um you said you said there isn't a lot of sports litigation but are many people with your training engaged in the sports reform conversation within economics um the the general field of study that people do and then end up becoming expert witnesses in an antitrust case is called industrial organization, and that sounds like something completely different than it really is. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's, it's some sort of engineering process or something like that where you go on the shop floor and figure out how to make things work better. It's not. It's really just the study of the interaction of firms in an industry, how an industry organizes itself. Is it perfectly competitive? Is there, are there a few mm-hmm. firms that are in a duopoly? Is it a monopoly? Things like that. And how does that affect the strategic interaction of firms? And because that study 
dovetails very nicely with questions that the law asks in antitrust about are these is what these firms are these two firms cooperating or are they colluding um, in, against the the public interest? Um, they go together well. But the thing is, is that there's also another field within economics, and it's probably it's much newer, and it's it doesn't have the same cachet, and that's sports economics. Mm-hmm. And you know, within the within the canon, there is a separate code for journals that do sports economics. You know, it's it's recognized, but. The people who do industrial organizations, and that would include most of my colleagues from from when I was getting when I was grad school, and also my first ten years working in antitrust, would see that as a, a, a sort of a lesser yeah. a lesser field. Yeah. Um, but within the small discipline, the thing is, is that we develop specialized knowledge, and, and I guess I can say I'm in both camps. And I think that the the people who do industrial organization, if they don't know the the actual economics literature around sports they can make really silly statements almost by relying on general statements and they would never do this if it were the steel industry they'd say well i need to really know the the facts of the steel industry but in sports it's because i think we all know sports right we watch sports center everyone everyone thinks they can coach and for some reason like oh well therefore i can be a sports economist and like there are some great economists, and I'm certain that if they spent the time, they would be far better than I am at what I do. But they don't, and then they, they sort of become dilettantes. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic. I think there's a similar dynamic in other guilds. I mean, I see that in, in ethics and philosophy and, and theology, that there increasingly is a you know, kind of little track of people looking at sports theology or sports ethics. But there's something about it that has not really immersed itself or there's an assumed um, expertise there that keeps the conversation in a not-so-constructive place sometimes. So I think that what you just described is actually kind of common in other... The one thing that I've noticed with your work, Andy, is I've I've been in the sports world for my entire life, uh, from the NFL down to high school, you name it. And so many people that don't come up in that, where I read some of what they've written or things like that, I think to myself, well, gosh, they, they really don't get it. That That's kind of wrong. But when I read so much of what you've written, whether it's in Deadspin or Vice Sports or the appendices in the back of Indentured, I'm like, okay, here's here may be the only, if one of the few people not embedded in sports that absolutely gets it. And I really appreciate your work. One of the things that you do so well is you cut through some of the absolute sturdiest myths in collegiate sports. And one of them is the woe is me narrative among athletic administrators around the country that big time football has such high expenses and low revenue. Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, said only 14 schools made money in football. I mean, can that be true? Uh, so the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> first of all, thank you. The things you said are, are were very kind. In terms of that number in specific and the general concept of what's going on, there's a bunch of things in that in that statement. So, first of all, one of the things the NCA does is they never actually report how many schools are making money in football, though they probably lead you to believe that's what they're saying. They always report an all athletic department budget, and if you think about it. For me, that's like saying, like, well, we make money in two sports, and then we spend it all, and when we're done spending it all, we don't have any money. 
Um, mm -hmm. And they would be like, so I make good money as an economist, but, you know, if I, I, I don't, but if I had a yacht and mm -hmm. um, I don't make alimony payments, but if I did, and we go through all the list of things, and I do have three kids that are college age and we paid a lot of tuition, and once all I, I deal with all those things, it turns out being an economist is not very profitable. Hmm. But, you know, what I, how much I make and how much I spend are, are generally speaking, choices there. And it's mm -hmm. the same thing in athletic departments. Now, there are, there are some things that are required. It's the same way that I have to pay taxes when I earn money. The athletic department has to obey Title IX. That brings with it certain financial requirements so that if you were to have a football team and a basketball team and not have women's sports, you'd be in violation of the law. And even if you had women's sports and you chose to underspend on those based on what the law requires, you'd be in trouble with the law. But what goes on in an athletic department is well beyond those legal requirements, so it's all about choice. And choosing to spend the money is very different than not having the money. So, so that's one thing. Um, the football teams, I think, pretty much, if you dig in, even under the NCAA's accounting, which we haven't even talked about yet, basically half of FBS makes money. And so, you know, that's not so unusual to have an industry where half of the, of the firms are profitable. But there's still problems with that. <laughs> One of the problems is that expenses are magnified on those the, the, uh, in the accounting standards that the NCA has created for itself. So most, most people probably maybe have heard about there's something called GAAP, the generally accepted accounting practices. It's what public companies need to, to follow. There are equivalents for... Um, for government, people that interact with the government to, to, as a nonprofit, there are accounting centers. The NCA made up its own, and that could be fine. But one of the problems with any accounting standard is that it is usually designed for a purpose. So maybe you've heard that companies have to keep two sets of books, not just the mafia, but real, real public companies. <laughs> Um, because they have one set that has to meet GAAP for their public reporting, and they have another set that has to meet the IRS's requirements, and they're different. And when people engage in GAAP accounting, for, so for their, ten, their, their annual report or their, their 10K, things like that, generally speaking, they're trying to show profits. They want to advertise to the people who buy stock, this is a profitable company, we're doing well, you should buy our stock. But when they go to the IRS, they want to show as little profit as possible, and it's quite possible to do both because the rules are different and the standards are, are designed for different things. Almost all companies show lower profits on their tax forms than they do on their public statements, and that's fine. So the NCAA's accounting is not designed to ask the right questions. It's not designed to say, are we making money? It's designed in the same way that every other department on campus is designed to manage a budget. The budget that's being given to the athletic department is, in essence, a university decision about how much it thinks should be spent. The fact that that budget sometimes is more than the department itself generates, then it makes it look like they're losing money because they say, well, your revenues were X. We gave you another $20 million, say, and you spent X plus 20, so you lost $20 million. And it's, the answer is like, no, you... I earned $20 million from you, the university as a whole, because you decided that the optimal amount of spending for our department was higher than our ability to generate revenue, just like pretty much every other department on campus, because the history department generates like zero revenue. The, most departments, I mean, there are some, a lot of the sciences will get a government grant, but 
especially in the humanities and social sciences, those grants are a small fraction of the departmental budget, but nobody seems to think that, like, there's a problem that, I'll keep using history because that was my major undergraduate, that the history professors and secretarial pool and turning on the lights and, and whatever rent the university is charging for the building is, is coming at a deficit, they don't make a big deal about that because that's what universities do. And the same thing is going on on this end. So that's a very long preamble for saying, let me give you an, some examples of why that matters. If the purpose is to basically give an athletic director, the head of a department, a budget, and then say, be autonomous, because we're not going to manage you except by telling you how much you can spend, what you'll find is that person will then go out and spend it. And if you think that the department is generating too much revenue, like at, I mean, more than you want them to spend, say at Ohio State, I use this example a lot. At Ohio State, one of the things that the university does is it charges the athletic department a library fee. And the library fee is about a million dollars a year. There is no way that the athletic department is generating a million dollars worth of library depreciation over the course of a year in a way that is different than any other student, right? But the, the, the reason that they do that is because if you add a million dollars of expenses to Ohio State's budget, then they have less surplus to spend. So it's a way of basically saying that um, at Ohio State, you make more money than we want you to spend. So we want to make sure some of it comes back to the campus. It's a tax, really. At other sure. places where, where maybe they want to grow, like let's take a UMass, which is a relatively new FBS school, UMass wants the department to spend more than it can generate. It's a little bit like the first day of a startup. Mm -hmm. The first day of a startup, if you said you can only spend the revenue that you generate, they'd be like, well, we can't do any advertising. They'd be like, well, I guess you're going to die then. And like, no, you go to your investors and you say, we need to run a deficit for a few years to get going. So UMass has decided they want to improve how people in the state and across the country think about the university one of the ways that's been very successful about that is to play big-time football. And that takes, that takes money. So UMass will show a loss, but when you go and you talk to the people in charge of UMass, they're like, well, of course they're showing a loss. We're doing this on purpose. It's a, it's a form of advertising. So right. that's a long-winded way of saying the revenue that UMass, for example, is recognizing is not on the athletic department's books. It's in increased admissions. It's in getting a better applicant pool so that they can be ranked higher in, in the various tables that rank schools so that they can improve their reputation, so that they can do all the things that a university sees as its mission, and it, it's using, in this case, sports as a, as a leg up. There's been studies that have shown that FBS schools have 75 to 80 percent of their mentions in the media for sports and only 20 to 25 percent for academics. Right. And so it's a way for them to make, make money elsewhere. But you'll never see that on the athletic department books. So the NCAA would say, oh, UMass is losing money hand over fist. So then, like, if, it, if that were true, and, and in fact they'd say that, you know, of the 130 now FBS schools, only, like you said, something like 15 to 25 in any given year are making money, what kind of industry would now be 100 years old where right. every year – the, there's some almost every year. There's a, a school begging to come in. Where twice over the last 15 years, the NCAA has actually had to say, you know what? There's too much demand to get into the industry, so we're going to have a moratorium where no new teams can join FBS and no new teams can join Division One basketball until 
But we let things sort them out because too many people want to get in. That doesn't happen on a company that's losing money. On an, indus- on, an industry, on an industry where everybody but the top 10% is losing money, you would see, you would see massive shrinkage in, in mm-hmm. entrance. You'd see firms exiting. You would see budgets being cut. You wouldn't see growth in the number of people in the, in the athletic department. And in particular, it doesn't make any sense in light of the fact that, I mean, literally since 1984 when the rules of TV changed, every year – Total revenues have grown 7 to 9% consistently. Even during the recession, there has never been a year where FBS revenues have declined. It's just that they're housed in this nonprofit organization, and they're given a budget, and they spend it. So, right. so it, it really comes down to they, they keep buying bigger yachts, and then they <laughs> say that their, their job isn't, isn't, isn't right. making the money because they have a bigger yacht payment. Right. Well, and that's a great description of how the NCAA uses particular accounting practices and and universities, too, to paint a particular picture of the nature of the collegiate model of sports. So talk a little bit about how scholarships play into this. I have said for a long time scholarships are, are monopoly money. It's funny money, but, you know, a lot of athletic directors like to quote these huge um, numbers for how much they spend on collegiate athletes, millions of dollars, um, and they are generating that figure with a scholarship. What's really going on there um, with the actual cost for an institution when it comes to scholarships? There's a difference between the price of an object and the cost of an object. Mm -hmm. A book is probably a good example. Part of the scholarship includes required books. And, and since the beginning of last year, you can now also get some money to cover recommended books. But for a long time, if you gave an athlete their recommended books, that was against the rules. When you give an athlete a book, it has a price. You know, textbooks are, are quite expensive these days. You could say a, a chemistry book might cost $200. It doesn't cost the school $200. If they run their own bookstore, it might cost them $100. But they put down on the form saying how much they spent, $200, even though they didn't spend it. They bought it at wholesale, and they, they hand it to the athlete. And no money ever changes hands in that transaction, or perhaps it does. Perhaps they give him $200, he goes to the bookstore, and he buys it, and the bookstore shows $100 of cost, $200 of revenue, and that's $100 of profit. Hmm. And that shows up on the bookstore's books. And the athletic department says, yeah, well, we gave them $200 of value, and that may be true. It may be $200 of value, but it didn't cost the university as a whole $200. It cost the athletic department $200, but it's netted out by a profit of $100. So that's what we call a related party transaction in economics, meaning that the two sides of the transaction basically share a bank account. It's like taking money out of one, one pocket in your pants and putting it into the other, mm-hmm. and you say, well, my left, left pocket just lost $200. And if you don't take into account that your right pocket made $100, you're, you're missing half the transaction. So lots of things go into that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to room and board, well, room and tuition, it's more complicated. So we'll get to talk a little bit about something that, that economists call opportunity cost. Basically, the idea behind opportunity cost is anytime you choose to do something in a way that it means you can't do something else, even if it's free, like I'm going to go to a free show, well, you could have worked for two hours during that free movie. There was a cost there, and it's the cost of whatever you would have made working for two hours. And 
what you need to do in, in real life is be true to yourself. Well, would you actually have worked, or would you have just stayed home and watched TV, in which case there really wasn't any opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. But what this means is that, and this is a reason why when I mentioned before that the NCA having one standard for how they do their accounting makes no sense, because there are two very different kinds of universities within Division One. There are universities that are highly selective, and basically any time you let somebody in at a discount, almost certainly that means that there was one student you couldn't let in who would have paid, maybe not full price, but would have paid something like the average tuition that a, that a normal student pays. And so if you give a, a scholarship, you are incurring opportunity costs. I gave, I gave Andy um, zero tuition. That meant I, I couldn't charge, uh, I'll use my son's name, Benjamin, the you know, full tuition. So we lost money, even though we don't show that on our books at all. Mm-hmm. But then there are other schools where either because they're trying to grow enrollment or because they're not selective and they let everybody in, where admitting one more student has zero effect on the, other, the rest of the campus, on how many other people you admit, how, how many other people attend. So it's much more like a book budget where just because I give you a copy of, say, Joan O'Sara's book, Indentured, doesn't mean I can't sell as many more copies as I want. There's no opportunity cost there. Mm-hmm. And so that means if you're going to think about what a scholarship costs, the big pieces, tuition and room and board, you need to know whether the school is basically substituting a paying student for a, a scholarship student and displacing somebody from the dorms or not. And that could even differ between freshman year. A lot of times schools have sufficient dorm, but because they have a requirement for freshmen to be on campus, that for freshman year you may have be displacing a freshman, but you could take more transfer students. So this is not the, the answer that, like, the two-minute answer or the three-second answer that people in the media who cover this stuff can handle. Mm-hmm. But it's almost impossible to say without understanding a school's economics whether economically the, two, the scholarship is real money or fake money, monopoly money. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say monopoly, I, of course, think about antitrust monopoly as opposed to fake money. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, it's, it's certainly script, which is company money. And the question is whether that script that they're giving out brings a small cost or a high cost. In the case of, let's take, I went to Stanford, we'll take Stanford as an example. If Stanford tomorrow decided to become like the University of Chicago, which I don't think it ever would, they've threatened it, though, but I don't think they ever would because... I think it's built into some of their brand that they are the school that wins Mm -hmm. the Director's Cup every year uh, because they have a well-rounded student-athlete, and it's part of a lot of what Stanford likes to project. It's in Silicon Valley. There's lots of people who are great at everything, and one of the things that we're great at is all sorts of sports. But if they did choose to do that, almost certainly they would be letting in, say, 300 more paying customers. And while they wouldn't pay full tuition on average, they'd pay something like 70% of the listed price of tuition. So there's a real loss of revenue, which is an opportunity cost. But let's go down the road to San Jose State. I don't think that San Jose State's in that position. And, and if they are, we can pick another school that, you know, I wor- recently worked on some stuff for the University of Alabama, Birmingham. For sure, UAB, they have fewer people on campus than they want. So every athlete they let in has zero impact on the paying customers, and there's no cost there. So tuition is effectively free, except for whatever the additional expense you incur to make sure there's a few more teachers on campus mm-hmm. because you have 100 more athletes. And that's super small compared to the cost. So so just this is just kind of a follow-up question. What's the metric by which you 
put in the line item for the fact that the opportunity cost for a paying student, I, I understand, I'm following you on that, is then offset by a revenue generating student. Oh, well, right. So if you want to take that into account, you also need to think about revenues. And so these are all the ways that we're talking about that profit can be disguised. And mm-hmm. one of them is if you don't have any opportunity costs, listing scholarship at full price is, um, is bogus. Is, it's, it's, I don't think in accounting they would call it a lie, but whatever the accounting equivalent of that word is, that's what it is. In ethics, we do call that a lie then. Okay, so you can say that. <laughs> and, um, but, there, but if you don't capture the revenue that that athlete generates, then it's a lie by omission. So, like, the, the putting over, overstating the expenses a lie by commission. The lie by omission might be, let's, let's look again at a school that literally has empty dorm space and they're filling up empty dorm space. That costs them almost nothing. There's probably a marginal increase in, in the cost of, of running the dorm, but, like, $50, not the $10,000 that they put down as the, as the rent that they're paying themselves. And let's just say they have a student who's on half scholarship, and that student wouldn't even have come to that school because they really wanted to play their sport somewhere. So if you didn't have the sport, they wouldn't have come and the room would have been empty. So not only are you overstating the expense, you're also understating tuition revenue because when someone pays half of, the, of their way, that's revenue. And if it's not displacing anybody else, that's revenue that you wouldn't otherwise get. So it's foregone revenue. Not letting them in has an opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And... The combination leads to you're stating an expense that isn't real, you're not stating a revenue that is real, you end up basically completely getting it backwards, and, you, and it looks to a bean counter or somebody who doesn't even know accounting and just looks at, why do we have a, I'll use bowling team, a women's bowling team at UAB? We lose money. What do we need it for? And if you actually dig in and you look at it, the, the, the women's bowling team at UAB made money because of all sorts of ways that revenue that didn't show up on the books was coming into the school and other places. Mm-hmm. And so let's leave aside tuition revenue. What if the reason that you have football, Alabama, the one in Tuscaloosa, has grown tremendously over the last 10 years, like probably 50% larger enrollment undergraduate today than it was a decade ago. Most of that growth in enrollment is from out-of-state students. In the state of Alabama, there's some concern over what that's doing to the university as a public good. It's, it's paid for by taxpayers, and do we really want to have a university that's devoting a lot of its resources to educating out-of-state students? But out-of-state students bring in a lot of revenue. They pay a much higher tuition, and arguably, um, by bringing in out-of-state students, especially if they're improving the, the sort of student profile, because you can be more selective among out-of-state students, it might actually be a good thing for the in-state students who are there, too. They're going to a school that's developing a better academic reputation. They go out into the world. They get better jobs. That is a little bit beyond my knowledge to know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I can tell you it's happening. And Mm -hmm. there is no doubt in my mind that the reason it's happening is because of Nick Saban. Right. Mm -hmm. And because of the athletes that Nick Saban brings in who have succeeded tremendously since the, the, the Mike Shula era at putting Alabama in people's minds all the time and making it seem like if you hear about the place enough, then you get this idea that it's a good school. So whatever, however good Alabama is or isn't for whatever major you might want to major in, 
they also have football, and that's an appeal to my, my oldest went to Michigan because he wanted to be at an FBS school. He wanted to have that, that Saturday experience. Sure. Certainly that's some of it. But even beyond that, just the fact that if you say Alabama, people go, oh, okay, I know that school, as opposed to if you say, well, I went to Alabama Huntsville, I go, well, what's that? And um, so it, it has resonance. It helps the school. And none of that revenue, none of that growth in tuition revenue is attributed to athletic. But almost certainly, if that athletic department had not begun winning, had not begun spending more to get there, that, that growth wouldn't have happened. And so economically, we know, we know it's real. It, it is a growth in revenue caused by athletics, but sure. accounting-wise, it doesn't show up. Now, you can overstate that. Um, you could look at some school. Maybe somebody would say Northwestern is a school that certainly can stand on its own academically, like it's down the, the, the road neighbor in Chicago. They're both great academic schools. They have great reputations. But it's an open question. If Northwestern stopped having sports, would it maintain the level of prominence in people's minds? If Chicago hadn't canceled sports in the, the late 30s, would they be seen as a peer of similar schools like, let's say, Stanford and Duke? I think in, if you ask scholars, they would say, of course, they're up here. But among, let's just say, the most important uh, constituency, the parents of high school juniors and seniors who are deciding where to apply and where to go, I think that Chicago, for all of its academic merits, does less well than similarly situated academic institutions that also play FBS football. Mm -hmm. and, and, and none of that, you know, none of that impact is showing up on the Duke books. The, the Duke basketball team is making Duke seem like it's a better place right. to study science than it is. Uh, you, you can't do a good analysis of what it would mean to cut the program. And if you can't do a good analysis of what it would mean to cut the program, then you can't really figure out what the net benefit is. Because yeah. that's the way to think about it. We're an existing school. We're not starting up a sport, or maybe we will start up a school, but we don't have to start up a campus. On the margin, meaning, you know, taking everything else into, into account, what is this going to cost us and what benefit is going to be brought in? And the accounting that is published, that, you know, good reporters out there, USA Today does great data work, but right. they do poor analysis of what those numbers mean because they don't unpack them. It's clear to me that colleges don't want to operate in a free market because they don't want to have to pay the market value. Ergo, they operate with this price fixed model. It doesn't seem to me that this is legal. The NFL and the NBA negotiate with their labor force what a salary cap is. Is what the NCAA does, is, is it even legal by having a price fixed without negotiating? Okay, so I have to give the disclaimers now. Um, I am not a lawyer. Um, I do work in the law. And I also particularly work on litigation, including pending litigation, where the NCA is defending against claims that what it does is not legal. So people should recognize that um, while this is my opinion that I had well before I worked on this case, I, I do make money doing this. So um, factor that into what you, how you evaluate what I'm saying. The NCAA has long maintained that a court case in 1984 that found what they did for TV rights was illegal under the antitrust law, that it was a form of price fixing. And I can, I can tell you what they did real briefly. Basically, the NCAA as an organization, which was then based in Kansas City, but we can think of it as the central office in Indianapolis now, took away the right to sell individual TV packages from every single school 
as a requirement of membership in the NCAA and then sold a single package to the highest bidder. And part of that package involved limiting the number of games on TV to originally one game a week. Right, and, and that was Walter Byers was the head of the NCAA spearheading that at the time, right? That's right, and and it was seen as a way to grow revenue because the thought was that by keeping the product scarce, um, it would command a higher price. And that is true, but it, it generally turns out that if you have a monopoly, while you, um, you may maximize your profit, you don't necessarily maximize revenue, and you certainly don't maximize output. And so it's illegal under the antitrust law. And it was an open question until this lawsuit whether that practice was legal. The court said 7-2, to no, it's not legal, it's illegal. But what they said was, and this is, this is true for all sports, that sports are a little different than manufacturing books. If all of the book publishers get together and say what they're going to charge people, the laws in our country are set such that, generally speaking, the argument that a, a, um, a committee of well-intentioned industry leaders getting together and saying the market price is too low or too high and we need to change that in order to preserve the industry is almost always illegal, except in sports. It's almost always per se illegal, by which I mean you don't even get to explain yourself. You get caught doing it. You go to jail if it's a, in some cases, or you pay a fine in other cases. In sports, it's different. There's something called the rule of reason, which says, in essence, that in certain situations, we need to look at the reasons why an agreement was made before we can decide whether it is or isn't illegal. And the standard we'll use is, is it pro or anti-competitive? And this is, this is a great thing for economists who do work in litigation. It's sort of a full employment act, and I'm thrilled that it exists in terms of my own career arc, but what it means is that in order for a, a jury or a judge to decide whether the activity is illegal, they have to consider whether it's anti-competitive or not. And generally speaking, a jury, a lay jury or a, or a judge is not in a position to know that without help from an expert witness. So both sides will hire economists to say why it is or isn't pro-competitive or is or isn't anti-competitive. But for the NFL and the NBA, to be competitive, they have to fix a price or have a salary cap is their argument. Well, so here's the, the part where I think that the NFL can make an argument that a, a, a factory, of two, two manufacturers of a good uh, couldn't, which is that if the Raiders and the Ravens decide, want to, want to decide where they're going to play, when they're going to play, and be part of a, a, a league schedule, um, somebody has to coordinate that. Whereas if two steel mills want to decide what, how much steel they're going to make and when they're going to sell it, that coordination would be illegal. So there are certain things that the law would say, look, the, the setting of a, an output schedule, which is what a, what a league season is, an output schedule is per se illegal in almost every industry but not in sports. What's hmm. different about labor is that actually it's not essential under the antitrust laws for the NFL to put a salary cap in. And there was a case in the 80s where Freeman McNeil sued and won, saying, no, we, you can have free agency in football. It's not necessary to produce the NFL to keep the owner's salary cost down. But there's a separate part of the law, labor law. And under labor law, if a multi-firm industry collectively bargains with a national union that represents all workers in the industry, and that's like the NFLPA for the NFL, it, the, the terms of that agreement 
provide a form of immunity from antitrust laws. And this is why when Maurice Claret tried to um, go pro before the NFL's rules allowed, even though at the district level it was found that it was anti-competitive, the, the, the circuit court said, sure, but this was a, a fairly negotiated arms-length deal between labor and management, and we have something called the non-statutory labor exemption, which says that if you have those conditions, even if the, the agreement itself would violate the antitrust laws, we're not going to apply them. We're going to let the labor law trump the antitrust law. Mm-hmm. And that's why the salary cap in the NFL is legal. And that's why in 2011, when there was the lockout and there was a lawsuit that led, was led by Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, and it went to court, that's why the NFL was begging the court to say, you can't let the union dissolve itself. And that's why the players were saying, we want to dissolve the union. Right. Sort of sounds weird. And labor, normally lab, management doesn't want a union and labor does. But here it was because the labor agreement was precluding the players from taking advantage of the antitrust law because right. it trumps it. And the NFL knew that under the labor law they had a good deal going. That, and this is an example I don't think a lot of people know. Maybe people are starting to learn about it. In European soccer, there, there are labor unions in Europe, but they, they play a very different role in soccer. And because there are five, let's call them power conferences, there are five major European soccer leagues, football leagues. There's the Premier League, there's the La Liga in Spain, mm-hmm. there's French, Italian, and the Bundesliga in, in Germany. And players are mobile. They can go among them for the last 20 years. There used to be restrictions on that, but European antitrust laws pro- prohibit that. Players there get 50% is the minimum that you'd see a league giving to its players. In some of the leagues, they get 70, 80. In, in some of the small leagues, like in Bulgaria, players get 100% of the revenue. So the NFL knows that if it didn't have a salary cap, players would get a higher share. So they were going to court saying, you can't let the union disband. The, the players are saying, we have disbanded and you need to recognize that. They ultimately settled, but the reason that the NFL so desperately wants there always to be a union is because that keeps right. the salary cap legal. Right. Um, the NCAA doesn't have that because they don't have a labor union. What the NCAA says is that from this case that I, that in 1984, it's called the Board of Regents case, um, there was a line in that case that said what they're doing now with TV, that's illegal. But, of course, they have to have some rules. They have to decide the width of the field. They need to decide how many games to play. And, of course, players must not be paid. And they point to that language and say, look, the Supreme Court said players must not be paid, so we have to agree on it. That has given them a form of, like, it's not immunity, but it's like a a big stick that anyone who thinks about suing them, you're going to have to overcome this language. And But as I understand, that language was not the meat of the matter. It was almost in passing talking about the other stuff. Well, so that's what I would say, and I think that's what a lawyer would say, except for the lawyers who work for the NCAA. But the argument is that the NCAA makes is no, while that was not what the case was about, because the case was about TV rights, it was such a central part of the reasoning that it is, in fact, as if the Supreme Court provided them with an antitrust exemption with respect to athletes. And that was an issue in the recent O'Bannon case. Right. And, and that's, for all of the, the, the things that we can say about the O'Bannon case that were dis- was disappointing, the best part was that in the Ninth Circuit, which covers a big chunk of the West Coast, the, the law is, and it went up on appeal, so the whole Ninth Circuit says that the NCA is not immune from antitrust with respect to the question of whether the scholarship limits are 
price fixing. And the particular scholarship limit that was in place from 1976 through last year was illegal price fixing. So that's a big win for, for people who believe in markets. It's a big win for athletes. It's a big win for people who think that competition is really the best way to produce products in our society and that immunizing firms, in this case schools from competition, is not the way to sort of maximize societal welfare. Right. Thank you so much, Andy. This has been fascinating, and I'm glad to know this isn't the end. We get to continue this uh, in our next show. Uh, thank you so much for today. We also have some interesting shows coming up you won't want to miss. Of course, we'll continue our conversation with Andy Schwartz, economist. And we'll also um, have episodes where we explore race and racism in sports, the genetics of competition, and much, much more. Thanks to WBAA, West Lafayette's public radio station. And a big thank you to Erica Yawn, our sound engineer. Remember, you can follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you can find us on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep and ShoopsGoingDeep.com. We want to thank all of our listeners. We're very thankful for you, and you help us to go deep. Remember, we're Team Shoop. Join us next time on Going Deep.